0: It's a sickening feeling when suddenly, cops are waiting at your door, and a member of your family hasn't been home. Fear falls to the pit of your stomach, and you immediately want answers. In most tragedies, families find the who, what, and why. But in some cases, they are left with endless questions and an incessant feeling of doubt. Here are their stories. Jodie Riley Wilson Jodi was a 23-year-old from Roxbury, New Jersey. Around this time in 2008, she had just moved to Oklahoma looking for a fresh start. She stunned her friends and family when only a few months later, she announced that she was getting married and was having a baby. She went on to marry her husband, Beau, in September 2008, and her daughter was born just a few months after. Though Bo and Jodi were happy, she did not feel accepted in the family and felt like an outsider. She mentioned to her maid of honor that she had some issues with her in-laws and that she was thinking about going back home to her parents with her baby. Jodi also told her that Bo and her have argued over the differing opinions they had about her in-laws raising their child. And apparently, this was a very reoccurring theme. In the beginning of May 2009, Jodi, her husband, 3-month-old daughter, and her in-laws were set to head off to a family funeral in New Mexico. Inexplicably, Jodi did not make the trip. She had just landed a job selling Avon cosmetics and was very excited about it. The day the last time anyone has heard of her, she had a lunch meeting with the Avon district manager. Jodi told the manager that she was going to be away for a few days for a funeral and later that night, Jodi sent out an email regarding sales techniques and casually reminding her boss of being out of town Thursday through Saturday, stating that she had just lost her phone but could be reached on her husband's number. It was sent at 9.17 p.m. on Tuesday, May 5th. However, this day was the same day that was referenced by her husband that they left for the funeral along with their baby and the in-laws. To this day, it isn't clear if the family left earlier than planned or Jodi was just confused on the date they were going to leave. Her friends added that there was no way Jodi would allow her newborn to leave without her. According to her husband, Bo, Jodi apparently had changed her mind about the funeral. During the funeral, the attendees said Bo was beating himself up for leaving Jodi back home. They even said that Beau worshipped her. Jody's mom, Stacy, mentioned that she spoke with her daughter that Tuesday at 9pm when she told her that her phone was lost. When Jody didn't respond to her email on Thursday, Stacy called Bo, who told her that she decided to stay home. In that phone call, Bo apparently had a friend check the house on Friday, but Jody nor her vehicle was there. When they arrived back home that Saturday, Bo filed a missing person's report. When they checked the house, they found that the family dogs were left unfed, and there were two rain-soaked packages left at their front porch. At this point, her friends and family has already began searching for her, but Jody was already found, the same day of the funeral in New Mexico on May. 2009, a paraglider spotted a body near the top of the mountain in the woods. More than a month afterwards, her Chevy was located more than 100 miles away from where her body was spotted, but no evidence was recovered. Since then, leads have stopped coming in, and a $30,000 reward is being offered for any other information. The Rodin Family Murders at 7:53 a.m. on April 22, 2016, Dana Lynn Roden's sister calls 911 in a panic to report Dana's murder. By the time police arrived at the scene, two more crime scenes were found, which accounted with a total count of seven bodies from the same family. Later that afternoon, at 1:26 p.m., a friend named Donald Stone called 911 to report an eighth body that belonged to the same family. The victims were 37-year-old Dana Lynn Roden, 40-year-old ex-husband of Dana, Christopher Roden Sr. Their eldest son, 20-year-old Clarence Frankie Roden, their younger son, 16-year-old Christopher Roden Jr., their 19-year-old daughter Hannah Roden, their oldest son's fiance Hannah Gilly, 38-year-old Gary Roden, who is cousins with Chris, and 44-year-old Kenneth Roden, which is the brother of Christopher Sr. All died from multiple gunshot wounds to their head except for Kenneth who only had one. The location where the bodies were found were said to be in very remote locations and that the suspect or suspects must have known what they were doing. Investigators received just under 900 tips, conducted 465 interviews, and carried out 38 search warrants. They scoured cell phones and surveillance cameras that could lead to any evidence, but nothing proved to be beneficial. A few days after the killings, during a press conference, they mentioned that they found a commercial-sized marijuana grow operations at two crime scenes that consisted of hundreds of marijuana plants. In one crime scene, they mentioned that money had been thrown on top of the dead bodies and at the same location they also found that the killer, or killers, attempted to clean up the scene. Additionally, the family surveillance equipment was removed by the killer. Currently, the only lead they have is the fact that Dana's brother, James Manley, found a tracker in his truck, removed it, and destroyed the government-owned device. Additionally, James Manley sent a text message at 2 a.m. to Josh Wagner at the night of the murders. To make it more suspicious, Josh Wagner, his girlfriend and daughter, suddenly packed up everything and left for Alaska only days before their search warrant was executed. Right now, they are at a halt until they find the Wagners. Until then, there is a reward for more information on this case. Jack Wheeler III Jack was a former Pentagon official and consultant. According to friends and his resume, he was a brilliant man. Graduated the top of his class at Military Academy West Point, and later earned a business degree from Harvard, law degree from Yale, served in Vietnam, and found the organization that built the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. He carried out projects for both President Carter and Reagan, helped guide Macy's out of bankruptcy, built 51 schools in Vietnam, and even served as a national director for both Mothers Against Drunk Driving as well as the Deafness Research Foundation. These are just small pieces of a large legacy he left behind. It's easy to say that he was successful, but most importantly, he was responsive to everyone, especially his wife. Therefore, when his wife hasn't heard from him for a few days, she became worried. Later, her stepdaughter arrived to tell her police called her letting her know of his death. Jack had been beaten severely and therefore suffered from a heart attack. His body was discovered in the landfill after being dumped from a trash truck. Before the body was found, Jack and his wife were an argument about him heading to D.C. You see, him and his wife had two homes and often traveled alone to handle their work and businesses. Sometimes they didn't agree. The two fought through text messages and emails for a couple of days until Jack stopped responding. However, what his wife didn't know was the weird things that were happening when Jack first arrived in Washington. That first night on the 28th of December, a neighbor heard a weird thudding sound outside. He went to his window where he saw a dark silhouette of a man standing across the street in the front of under-construction home, methodically lighting what looked to him like small balls of fire and tossing them onto the floor. What is a coincidence is the fact that it was well known that Wheeler and his wife opposed the construction because it blocked their view of the trees and the water and even circulated a petition in addition to filing legal challenges against the home. Suddenly, he was accused of an arson attempt. A few days later, on December 30th, a close neighbor who had known them for a while noticed odd details about their second home. The upstairs was open, a side door was left ajar, a dining room chair was overturned, several dishes were broken in the sink, the counter was covered in scattered spices, a large path of powdered kitchen cleanser was covering the entire floor, only revealing one bare footprint. And, the most damning of it all, was that Jack's most prized possession, his West Point cadet sword, was on the floor and unsheathed, laying atop of a sword's cover. The neighbor, who thought there was a break-in, called authorities around the same time the landfill worker found Jack's body. When investigation began, the focus quickly turned to eyewitnesses and surveillance footage detailing Jack's last hours, where he walked around downtown. A usually groomed Jack looked disheveled, distressed, and confused in the footage. He even only had one shoe on, with the other in his right hand. He was also seen wagging his finger at one attendant and later was seen opening and abruptly closing the garage door without even stepping outside of it. Witnesses state that he talked about someone stealing his briefcase and that he was looking for his car, which, Investigators found was just in another garage, which he left there willingly. Another weird occurrence was that Jack traded his suit jacket for a black hoodie, which he used by pulling up the hood tight over his head. Witnesses state that he complained about being robbed and eventually requested a ride out of town. A worker said he offered him money, but Jack declined. The next day, surveillance showed him arriving at a high-end office of a law firm. He asked to speak with a managing partner but left without any consultation. He exited the building that night, walking east towards a high-crime area that is designated as one of America's most dangerous small cities. The next morning, he was found dead. To this day, there are many theories, but no leads are there to move forward. Abby Williams and Libby German. Abby and Libby were great friends, and their bond was undeniable. They both loved art, both enjoyed playing sports, and both played the alto sax at their middle school's band. Since it was a rare Monday off from school the next day, they decided to have a sleepover. Abby brought over plenty of crafting items with the intent of making painted photos of nature on a customized canvas. The following day was warm, and the two girls decided they wanted to take photos at one of their favorite places they often frequented, the Mon High Bridge, which was the city's tallest scene attraction. The next day, which was Valentine's Day, instead of enjoying it with fellow classmates after a long weekend, the two girls were found dead in the woods, less than a mile away from the bridge they went to. We will never know what exactly happened that day, but what we do know is that there are photos and a video that can prove to be helpful. Taken from Libby's cell phone, the police released two still images that showed an unrecognizable man in a blue coat, who they said is their prime suspect. Authorities also released a three-second audio clip from the video recording with just three words recorded on it which was down the hill. Currently, over 15,000 tips have poured in. The reward for information has risen to $234,000, and the FBI is also helping with the case. But unfortunately, nothing has proved to be helpful in finding who that man is. The Circleville Letters and the Murder of Ron Gillespie this particular case is not as recent as arrest, but I feel compelled to include it. In 1976, 14,000 residents of Circleville, Ohio, started getting handwritten letters in the mail. The letter included personal details about each of the person, and they claimed that they were being watched. Though multiple people received the letter, the most dangerous were sent to Mary Gillespie. Mary was a local bus driver, and the letter accused her of having an affair with the superintendent of the community's school district. One of the letters state that, I know where you live, or, I've been observing your house, and know you have children. This is no joke, please take it serious. Mary kept receiving these letters and was able to hide away what was happening and therefore concealing her fear until one day. Not long afterwards, Mary's husband, Ron, also started receiving letters telling him to end the affair his wife was having or he was to die. Whispers through the town grew and eventually Mary's reputation was completely ruined and through it all, Mary stood her ground and explained herself especially to her husband that she had no clue what the author was talking about. The letters stopped briefly, and then suddenly, Ron received a phone call that caused him to burst out of the family's home and drive off in his car armed with a gun. Ron never returned. Later that day, police found Ron's car wrapped around a local tree with Ron's body inside. Ron's gun was fired multiple times, seemingly as if it was to protect himself, but evidence couldn't prove anything other than a car accident. It clouded the legal system in the community because the town began accusing the authorities of a homicide cover. up Well, Ron was a non-heavy occasional drinker after all. Despite her yearn for an investigation, the authorities refused eventually Mary confirmed the affair the letters continued to come until 1983 with even some addressed to her daughter the anonymous author also started installing harassing signs along Mary's regular bus route for the world to see but Mary became furious and decided to rip down one sign but when she did she found it rigged to a box with a string and when she opened that box Mary found a gun pointed right at her she reported the incident and the gun was traced to her brother-in-law Paul fresher Paul maintained his innocence from the very beginning but unfortunately unfortunately, with a firearm and an inconclusive test comparing his penmanship, they arrested and convicted him for attempted murder. However, the letters kept coming from Columbus, even though Paul was locked away in a whole nother town in solitary confinement. In fact, Paul himself even received his own letter while he was in prison. In that letter to Paul, it states, Now when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of here? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? Paul went to prison for a decade and was released in 1994. He has always maintained his innocence, and even all the wardens in the prison thought he was innocent too. Six months after Paul's release, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries aired a segment on the Circleville case, and just a few days later, the network got their own letter, and all it said was, and I quote, forget Circleville, Ohio. If you come to Ohio, UL sickos will pay the Circleville writer. To this day, we don't know who the writer is or what really happened with Braun. And sadly, the authorities in Ohio has already closed that case. What's up, everyone? Thank you again for watching. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe. We are 1,700 subscribers away from hitting our goal, so thank you very much for your support. And I'll see you next time.